From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Greg Bluestein. Today, we've reached the midway point in the legislative session. The Senate has passed a bill calling for a tax holiday on guns and ammunition. The Second Amendment sales tax holiday is intended to encourage hunting, conservation, and tourism in the state of Georgia. How will it fare as it moves to the House? We'll talk to the bill's sponsor, Senator Jason Anavatarte. I'm Patricia Murphy. Because I think it's possible that the facts alleged by uh, the defendant could result in disqualification, I think an evidentiary hearing must occur. Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis and Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade will have to testify about their romantic relationship in court on Thursday. That hearing will determine whether they should be disqualified from prosecuting the election conspiracy case. I'm Bill Nygut. Governor Kemp will announce today he's preparing to send more Georgia National Guard troops to the Texas border. He says the move is necessary because President Biden has failed to take action to enhance border security. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. I'm joined in the studio by Bill Nygut and remotely by Patricia Murphy. Hey, guys. Good to see you. Hey, Greg. Good to be here, Greg. I haven't seen either of you since Super Bowl Sunday. And my big question is actually for you, Patricia. How much of the game did you make it? Because my my 10-year-old made it the entire game and was in a catatonic state by like, what, 11, 15? (laughs) My my 13-year-old did not make it the entire game. (laughs) How, How long did you make it? So, Greg, I actually threw a Super Bowl party. That may come as a surprise. Oh, I should have invited you. I'm sorry. That's why uh, it comes as a surprise to you. But so I threw a Super Bowl party. But at halftime, after I watched Usher, I'm like, y'all can stay as long as you want. I'm going to bed. And I mean, people stayed for the whole game. So I, but I definitely did not make it past Usher. <laughs> and Bill, <laughs> I you, felt like I, <laughs> you turned into a hardcore NFL fan. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, uh, you know, and I realized why. Um, when you watch the athleticism, the incredible skill of a guy like Patrick Mahomes, it's hard not to want to just absorb that. He's a remarkable athlete, and he's made me a fan of the NFL. And, of course, I have nothing against the Travis Kelsey Taylor Swift romance. I think it's very sweet. (laughs) And my kids and all their friends were watching it very intently, counting how many times Taylor Swift made it on screen, uh, which was what? I don't know, 15, 20? (laughs) Yeah, she got in there more than they usually show her on NFL uh, games. And I don't blame them. Okay, we are joined right now by State Senator Jason Anafatarte to tell us all about Taylor Swift. No. Uh, I can tell you a lot about Taylor Swift. Yes. Uh, Senator Anafatarte is one of the top Republicans in the chamber and one of the state's most uh, prominent Hispanic politicians. Senator, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Great to talk to you all this morning. And uh, yeah, I hope you all had a fun Super Bowl. Did you make it the whole game? Well, my eighth grader made me almost stay the entire game because she's a big Swifty fan. And uh, so we watched every moment to the end. I'm a big Patriots fan. So 
watching Patrick Mahomes, you know, win was kind of uh, interesting, but you know, my daughter was up for Taylor Swift. So interesting is your way about. of saying demoralizing. <laughs> <laughs> well, Senator, let's start with some of the news coming today because Governor Kemp in a few hours is going to announce new steps to send more Georgia National Guard troops to the border and send other resources to help Texas and its standoff uh, against the federal government, but also uh, to, to tighten border controls. This comes as Republicans in your chamber passed a resolution on Monday condemning President Biden's immigration policies. Democrats say this is a pure political move for posturing sake. So why would Georgia Republicans adopt a resolution like this? Yeah, so I appreciate the question. I mean, I think where we're at right now is we're seeing states across the country, I think, honestly, having to step up um, and fill the void of what the federal government is not doing right now. I think sending troops, Georgia National Guard troops to the border is not a new thing. I know that in the past you have folks like uh, Commissioner John King, General John King. I mean, I know he has spent time at the border uh, with Georgia troops actually building the wall historically. Um, so I think as we've seen the gravity of security uh, increase and become worsening um, over the last several months, especially uh, since the attack in Israel, um, with you know greater concerns of terroristic threats, and we've also seen other Chinese nationals uh, moving across the border. I think 60 Minutes just reported on that over the last week. I think you're having governors like Governor Kemp, Governor Abbott, and others, um, you know, I think step up their game in terms of you know supporting what's happening in, in the midst of this crisis. I don't think this is as simple as the Democrats in the Senate um, shared yesterday about just immigration policy. I think we're past immigration policy, and I think this is about national security. Senator, um, you have a very unique perspective, um, both as a high-ranking Hispanic official, but also you've spoken in committee hearings and on the floor about your own background growing up um, with exposure to gang activity and drugs. And we hear from Republicans their concerns about both of those um, related to the southern border. Yeah, my I appreciate that, Patricia. I mean, my perspective is very unique. I mean, my brother, my family, I grew up in Doraville. Uh, we, we grew up basically in the Beaufort Highway corridor. And I think, as many know, if you watch the history and changing of Atlanta during the 90s with the Olympics, um, you know, we saw an increase in gang activity amongst Latino gangs, African-American gangs, Asian gangs. Um, <clears throat> I think during the early 90s, I was in middle school just to kind of, I guess, you know, share my age of, you know, kind of perspective. Um, you know, so we saw Atlanta become, you know, what my mom and dad in the 70s, uh, my mom in the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, you know, experienced to this international city. Um, so, you know, when I hear leaders talk about human trafficking, uh, trafficking of drugs and things like that, um, that's not new to Atlanta. I think that's something that's probably been around. But I think uh, the frequency, the volume, unfortunately, um, in these crimes and um, in these things that we're seeing in the environment um, are worsening. But I think a lot of it's because of national security policy um, increases in population. Um, and I think the pressures that we're seeing placed on local leaders, I used to be a city councilman, so I understand you know, the budgeting and hiring and retaining police officers and uh, neighborhood security. Um, so I think all of those things are taken into account in addition to, I think, the national discussion of what's going on uh, literally on the Arizona-Texas border um, across the country. So, um, yeah, I do have a very unique lens in terms of how I view things. Senator, um, we've certainly said, I've said, 
on the show on any number of occasions <clears throat> now that there's no question that the Biden administration early on had an opportunity to address the border more fully. They didn't seem to get there early on. They were kind of sleepy about it in some ways. Uh, now they've stepped up their efforts because they understand what an important issue it is in the election. Having said that, um, if you're going to uh, issue a resolution condemning uh, Biden, um, why are you uh, unwilling to talk about the fact that Republicans in Congress, in the House particularly, uh, refused to support what was not a perfect border security bill, but a border security measure that gave Republicans much of what you've been asking for for a very long time? Is it impossible to be to um, condemn both at the same time? Yeah, I, honestly, I think it, you can, Bill. I mean, I think where we're at right now as a country is that, you know, the president of the United States has all the executive authority and power to address this border. We don't need another congressional act. Um, I think the congressional act is trying to muddy the waters with Ukraine and other things going on right now. I think as we look at what's happening um, and how this impacts Georgia, other states across the country, um, I think we have to handle what is the crisis, you know, in front of us right now. And I think the deal that, uh, you know, congressional members were making, U.S. senators were making, um, you know, I think Biden is trying to, you know, save himself from him, save himself literally from himself in a way, um, because he could have acted on this at the beginning of his pres presidential term and not just here in the midst of an election when he's trying to when these numbers that relates to national security with the border. Um, we've seen this border crisis impact his numbers amongst Hispanics where, I mean, he's losing Hispanics nationally now because on this issue, um, you know, become a, a real threat to, I think, his presidency. So, um, you know, I think relying on Republicans to kind of bail him out is, is kind of weak. I mean, he's the leader of the free world. Um, he should act on it. And just because he had an epiphany that, you know, hey, I have a border crisis and, and now wants to act on it. Um, it's a little too little too late. And I think the American people and Georgians across the state um, are seeing that right now. Senator, I hear you. But what was your personal reaction when Republicans in Congress <laughs> scuttled that border deal that many, uh, many who have long supported tougher border security measures have proposed that Republicans in the Senate negotiated um, that, 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 you know, unions along the border of law enforcement officials also backed. Were you disappointed personally to see that scuttled at the urging of former president Trump? No, I mean, what I was disappointed is that like we're, we're having, we're not using our executive power to basically secure the border. I mean, that was my initial reaction just kind of right off the cuff was what, why is the president not just handling this, him, handling this himself working with law enforcement, our federal partners, um, our state partners, instead of, you know, arguing with Governor Abbott, you know, going to court, all this stuff going on. Why, why are we not collaborating and, and basically addressing the issue as, as it is? And I know my friend and, you know, we've talked about this, Greg, with, you know, Senator Marco Rubio, um, as we've talked about it, I think, you know, there there are, there are things as, as, the, as the leader of the free world that I think the president could be doing. Um, but I think trying to dismiss and say, hey, you know, Republicans don't want to be bipartisan. Republicans don't want to um, collaborate. Um, it's just a complete false narrative when we've had years to work on this. And none of, none of those 
you know, proposals have have come forward in any meaningful way. Only only until we've gotten in, gotten into you know kind of a climatic situation where we're at right now, where um, you know the discussion about closing the border to pro- to provide relief to the cities, the towns, to law enforcement on the front lines um, while we're at this place in time. So if President Biden does take executive action, you don't think Republicans would complain that he's doing this without them and without their input and blessing? Yeah, I can't forecast what, I mean, he, he's going to do or not do. I mean, he hasn't demonstrated in any way, shape or form whether he's going to do that. So I think until he does that, then I think we can react. But I think we're we're, we're waiting on the president. And I think the president's trying to wait it out to get through a presidential election. That's what this is about. Um, you know, that's why I believe we need to have a Republican president to address the security issue and and uh, exhibit strength across the world. Well, you know, I think a lot of things are falling apart. Senator, one other quick thing about the border and about what the president can do with executive actions. I do think it's important to point out that um, under under former President Trump, 14 executive actions that he proposed to strengthen border security were struck down by federal courts as being outside the jurisdiction of a president. So there are limits to the executive actions that a president can take, as former President Trump learned himself. Yeah, and that's the case. And I think, you know, as as you go through that process, I mean, I think that's why we have three branches of government. And, you know, I think everybody everybody has, has the right to, as we've seen on numerous issues, you know, the, the opportunity to challenge one another in, in court. Um, but I think, you know, the leadership right now is what's missing um, in terms of how we're going to move on and have a long-term discussion about border security. But it's not just the border security, it's about national security. It's about, um, you know, what does this mean in terms of uh, creating a border that's allowing potential terrorists from other parts of the world to infiltrate um, America? We're seeing uh, you know, Chinese nationals coming through the border um, and leveraging information from TikTok, which we all know TikTok is owned by the communist regime in China um, and pushing information. So all of these things in some way, I don't think it's just, you know, coincidence that they're happening. I think this is kind of, you know, in 2024, the new world we're living in, mm-hmm. in terms of national security. I, I don't view it as as simple as, um, you know, the security policies that, um, under President Bush or even President Reagan, which we I heard my colleagues, you know, go back 30, 40 years citing, which, you know, maybe some of their arguments are fair um, in, in a small way, but the technology in the world we live in is so much more different um, than under President Reagan or Clinton, um, you know, today. So I, I think we're living in a completely national security world right now. Sarah, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about the legislation that you sponsored that passed a couple of days ago. Uh, you call it the Second Amendment sales tax holiday. It's intended, in your view, to encourage hunting, conservation, tourism. Basically, it calls for a sales tax holiday on guns and ammunition. You received a lot of criticism from Democrats and others who noted that there are no other uh, sales tax holidays anymore. There's not a back-to-school sales tax holiday. Um, there's there's other sales tax holidays that were on the books have lapsed. And I'm going to read you something that State Senator Jason Estevis, one of your colleagues, one of your friends, in the, a Democrat in the State Senate, said uh, on, on social media, exempting handguns and ammo from taxes instead of baby diapers, feminine products, and school supplies shows you where the priorities are in this state. So what do you say to 
critics of that legislation who say, how come there aren't other broader sales tax breaks uh, while there is one or while there's a proposed one on guns and ammo? So uh, my response, and I, I mean, Jason is a friend, and um, I know leading up to the debate, I, I told him, I, ho I hope he asked me all the hard questions because we, it's, it's two Puerto Ricans, we ask each other a lot of hard questions. Back and forth. <laughs> so, um, you know, we call it the, the, the Jason Squared Coffee, as I tell his wife sometimes. But um, I think where we're at is, I mean, to have a, to have a, a, a sales tax holiday for our sportsmen, outdoorsmen, um, I don't think there's anything inappropriate to that, to that. I think taking that debate and then talking about gun control or that, um, you know, saving sales tax on ammo or those things, it's going to deter crime or lessen gun violence. I don't think we heard a single data point, um, you know, in the debate on the Senate floor, as we heard during constitutional carry, and even those arguments weren't real as it relates to what was, you know, crime stats, murder stats, anything like that as it relates to taxes. Um, my wife is a school teacher. Uh, she teaches at a high school um, in Paulding County. Um, three, all three of my kids go to public schools. Um, you know, if we want to have a sales tax for, uh, you know, markers, pencils, erasers, all those things like we used to have, I'll, I'll be the first one to say, let's, you know, let's do it. Um, somebody just needs to propose it and have a discussion and, and, and create a fiscal note. But I think to, you know, go down that pathway um, is a little bit disingenuous in terms of kind of uh, what we're talking about, um, trying to, you know, distract from, I think, the discussion and the policy that we're trying to have. So or trying to promote. So I know you've pitched it as a um, as something for sportsmen and for hunting. The legislation that would apply to all guns and ammunition and as well as some safety gear, I want to add in there as well. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, Senator Estevez did do an amendment, offered an amendment in committee to target this specifically to just hunting gear. Why not do that? Why not at least target it a little bit um, if it is meant to be only for sportsmen and to promote hunting in the area? Yeah, I mean, as, as I've told Jason, um, you know, we talked about during committee and I know he and I've, um, you know, we've discussed also and I've said this publicly. I, I don't know that, you know, the Second Amendment is the Second Amendment. And I'm, I'm a believer that, um, you know, the Second Amendment shouldn't be in, infringed. It shouldn't um, have artificial barriers. I think just to kind of label, you know, one group, you know, as hunters and then assume that a group is maybe, you know, a group of other, you know, types of folks that, uh, you know, handle weapons lawfully um, is another. I, I don't know that that's, you know, really an appropriate way. Um, so I think that's why I think the Second Amendment uh, should apply across the board in this case um, as it relates to the items that we listed in the bill that includes gun safes, trigger locks, those things. I know on the Senate floor just here in a few minutes, uh, we're going to take up Senator Kay Kirkpatrick's uh, gun safe uh, tax holiday, similar to kind of what we had in uh, our Senate bill. So I think the notion that we don't promote uh, gun safety, I think, is um, a little silly by the Democrats, just to be honest with you. Um, I think, you know, those that promote the Second Amendment and support the Second Amendment um, want our generation, even the next generation, to, uh, you know, be educated on how to properly handle um, and carry weapons. I know we have shooting clubs at high schools across the state, and those kinds of things are promoted um, and supported in all of our communities. Um, so I, th I think it's a, an issue that impacts all Georgians. But um, to I think 
get out on the fringe and say that this impacts street violence and those things as it relates to a sales tax, I think it's going a little too far. Okay, let's take a quick step back a little bit. Where did the bill come from? Help us understand how you decided to bring this bill. I know there are similar um, sales tax holidays in other states like South Carolina and Mississippi. How does something like this come to you? And how did you have the idea to bring it to your colleagues? Um, Really, I mean, like most bills that I introduce, I mean, they come from ideas in the community. They come from ideas um, from Georgians, just in terms of, you know, I won't say doing something different or unique, but um, I know that as it relates to, you know, I have family members like my father-in-law and others, um, they're outdoorsmen, uh, you know, they skeet shoot, they do all sorts of different things, uh, duck hunt throughout the year. Um, so I think that's kind of where this came from is basically our community in West Georgia and other Georgians who had the idea of, you know, let's not tax some of these, these items uh, before hunting season starts in October. Senator, do you personally uh, support trigger locks and gun safes? And will you vote for a measure that includes that? Or well, you've already voted. Do you? Do you? But did you believe those were essential components to this uh, measure? And I ask that in part because, mm-hmm. unfortunately, we're talking about this just in the aftermath of a tragic incident in DeKalb County, where a three-year-old child got a hold of the gun uh, that apparently was left unprotected in the house, shot and killed himself. To what extent do you personally believe trigger locks are essential to prevent that sort of thing from happening? Yeah, Bill, and I appreciate that. And first, say condolences to that family. I hope nobody ever has to live through that. Um yeah, I, I believe that. I mean, we we had gun safes in this bill from day one. I own a gun safe. Um, we store weapons in a, in a gun safe. I know, um, you know, I sort of joked on the Senate floor, people buy gun safes to, you know, put jewelry, personal items in, um, you know, maybe not necessarily weapons. Um, but I think those things are important. I think Senator Kowser's amendment in committee to add trigger locks, um, you know, is, is a good amendment. I think anything like that, I think is a positive. I think going further though, and in, in creating where I know there's been talks of public policy of, um, you know, tax credits in terms of creating, you know, where basically Georgians would have to enlist themselves on a list to get the credit and things like that. I'm a little wary of those types of policies just because um, those lead to red flag laws. And I think there's a concern of government intrusion um, when it comes to that. But I think if it's to enhance safety, in the community, and it doesn't infringe on the Second Amendment. Um, I think almost everyone in our party uh, supports that. I mean, we we believe in lawful weapons carriers. I mean, we believe, you know, as Patricia mentioned at the beginning of the show, um, you know, many of my friends growing up, I mean, carried weapons. I mean, we carried weapons, um, you know, in our middle school to keep ourselves safe back in the, back in the '90s. I mean, that you know, and, and unfortunately. Uh, for many parents uh, today, that still happens in this day and age. That's not a that's not a new, um, you know, thing in our culture. Um, do I think it's gotten worse? I don't know if it's gotten worse. I think it's it's highly more seen um, because of technology, uh, because of our phones, because of the conversation. Um, but I don't know that you know the Second Amendment has changed. And yes, I think we need to have more education. And I think in terms of we never have enough education on any topic. Um, you know, I mean, just like we're about to have a conversation on social media later today, this afternoon in committee, 
um, you know, on apps and things like that. Mm. But, um, you know, I, I think that's where it has to start. Um, but also, too, I think when we talk about safe communities, um, you know, working with our local partners, our local law enforcement, our prosecutors, um, and also community organizations that um, touch on this topic and provide education across the state. I think that's that's where investments need to be made. But I think to, um, you know, infringe on the Second Amendment, I, I just, you know, that's that, I won't go there. Senator, I know you've got to go vote soon, but before you go, before we take a break, uh, one last question. You were among the Republicans who initially backed another White House candidate, not just in 2016 when you backed Marco Rubio, but this past uh, election cycle when you initially backed Senator Tim Scott. You've now endorsed Donald Trump. Only a few states have voted, but Donald Trump has a huge leads in most of the early state and national polls we've seen. In your mind, is this Republican race over? And what do you tell Republicans who are still squeamish about Donald Trump, as you apparently were earlier on? Yeah, well, I don't know if I was squeamish. I mean, just to mm-hmm. um, set the record straight, I mean, you know, having chaired Marco's campaign here in 16 and Tim was Tim was a friend and supporter. We traveled in New Hampshire together during that campaign. Um, you know, when Tim called and said, hey, you know, I need your help and support. I'm going to help my friend. Um, I think, you know, kind of I do want to joke with I think Natalie's tweet I saw yesterday that March 12th is kind of the Super Bowl of the primaries. <laughs> I, I I I actually think March twelfth in Georgia is going to be the uh, the uh, the the post Super Game show. The, the post the game report. Over. <laughs> yeah, the post game report um, on report. You know, on reporting what's going to happen on that day. Um, I I do think that you know we probably will still see a to Natalie's point. I do I think we will see a large turnout no matter what because of the pre- presidential preference primary. But um, I think kind of what we're seeing because of the topics that you all raised today with the border, other national security issues, I think, you know, what's going on in Israel um, are top of mind. And inflation, the economy um, is just, I mean, impacting families in such a negative way. Um, I mean, I think this thing is over. And I think the discussion about, you know, what is the next several months leading to November um, and the debate with the Democrats has already begun. And um, I, I know I am there as a leader in the state in this state in terms of that conversation that we needed to start debating how we're going to move forward from the the policies in Washington that are destroying Georgia. Well, thanks for joining us, Senator. Get to the chamber before you get in trouble. Thank you all. Appreciate all of you. Our Take producer, care. Oh, Nat- I'm good. Our producer, Natalie Mendenhall, <laughs> gets a shout out. Uh, when we come back, the AJC, Shannon McCaffrey, joins us to look to a crucial day in the Trump election conspiracy case on Thursday when Judge Scott McAfee will hear arguments about Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis and Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade whether they should be disqualified for prosecuting the case based on the consequences of their romantic relationship. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Twice every day, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, exclusives from me and the rest of the AJC's politics team. Just go to AJC.com slash newsletters and sign up today. AJC.com slash newsletters. 
We're now joined by Shannon McCaffrey. And Shannon, instead of calling you a former political reporter, I guess I'll call you a reformed political reporter because you're now the editor of the AJC's team uh, covering the Donald Trump trial and you're still knee deep in politics, it seems like, every day. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, hey, before we start off, I think there's a little bit of, I don't know if it's called breaking news, but a peek behind the curtain. Um, We got um, conflicting reports yesterday about whether or not Donald Trump was going to attend this 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 huge hearing on Thursday. Shannon, do you have an update for us? Yeah, so um, Donald Trump's Atlanta attorney, Steve Sadow, put out a uh, statement this morning in which he really didn't talk about the Atlanta case, but he made very clear that Donald Trump would not be in Atlanta on Thursday, that he would be in New York on Thursday. So, you know, that pretty much answers the question without directly answering the question. And, you know, as as you note, Greg, we were getting conflicting information, you know, last night. But, you know, we also are dealing with um, a former president who is likely to change his mind. So, you know, it's possible that both things were true at one point. Yeah, and I guess it would be almost impossible to attend both hearings simultaneously. Uh, We'll find out. But can you set us up for what is in store, if not Donald Trump actually being there? What is in store for this this really important hearing that I know the national networks are planning to live stream? That's how important this hearing is from a national level. Um, When when Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis uh, and and her attorneys kind of uh, go in front of Judge McAfee. Yeah. So what we got yesterday, I mean, the the DA's office went into yesterday's hearing and I think what they hoped and best case scenario was that the the judge was going to quash subpoenas that would have required their testimony and let them get back to the election interference case. And that is not what happened at all. Uh, Judge McAfee made very clear that there were um, some issues he wanted to examine. And even though it's a little uncomfortable um, that they need to go into that. And he said, um, he said, here's a quote, but because I think it's possible that the facts alleged by the defendant could result in disqualification, I think an evidentiary hearing must occur to establish the record on those core allegations. So, yeah, I mean, McAfee is finding this uh, serious enough that he extended the hearing from what was supposed to be one day, Thursday, to two, to possibly two days, Thursday and Friday. Now, he didn't, um, we don't know if we'll hear um, from Fonnie Willis or Nathan Wade on the stand. What he has said is that he wants to hear first, <clears throat> excuse me, from Terrence Bradley, who is the form, a former law partner of Nathan Wade's. And he, he is important because Ashley Merchant, the lawyer who sort of stirred this all up, says that um, that Terrence Bradley can contradict what Nathan Wade said in a sworn court document mm. about when their relationship began. So he has become, and I think I think McAfee even used this word, um, you know, Ashley Merchant's star witness. So, Shannon, that quote from Judge McAfee that you just mentioned must have sent a chill up the spine of certainly Fonnie Willis and uh, Nathan Wade, um, because everything that we've been told, and I I, I know you all at the Breakdown podcast, as well as the coverage you do for the paper, talk all the time to legal experts, many of whom have said, look, they may have had an inappropriate relationship uh, but there's no reason to think that it would have anything to do with the uh, ongoing criminal uh, prosecution. That's what we're hearing from an awful lot of people. But here's another thing that I'm curious about your thoughts on. If this partner of Nathan Wade's can come into court and 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 state unequivocally um, that they did not tell the truth about when this relationship began, 
I would think more than anything else, perhaps, that really could be reason to think about disqualifying a Fonnie Willis and a Nathan Wade if it's proven that they have not been truthful in documents that they've submitted to the court. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly disturbing. I, I will say that Anna Cross, who was the um, lawyer who was representing the DA's office yesterday, um, pushed back and said that um, everything Nathan Wade wrote or, or signed in that affidavit is 100 percent true. Um, they said that the defense is trafficking, not in facts, not in law, but in gossip. Um, and I guess, you know, we're about to find out if that gossip is a fact. <laughs> other thing, the other thing I'll note is that um, Terrence Bradley also for a time worked as Nathan Wade's divorce attorney. Um, so while this didn't come up in in large part yesterday, I expect we're going to hear a little bit about whether anything Nathan Wade may have told them falls under attorney-client privilege. Shannon, a few other things um, caught my attention yesterday. First was that McAfee threw out a few of the arguments that um, the defense attorneys had come with, including the fa- the argument that Nathan Wade was not qualified to have been chosen in the first place. McAfee's words um, were that if he has a law license and a heartbeat, that's qualified <laughs> to him. Um, but he he has been able to, I think, make his way through this process as a judge where he is hearing out pretty fully all of these arguments, but not coming down on one side or the other. Um, And he seems to be, I think, keeping at least out people from the outside looking in. He appears very balanced in the way he's approaching this. Is that the way it looks from the inside and from people who are working with him? Do you think these attorneys feel like they're getting and even hearing from him? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we were all curious um, uh, how McAfee would uh, appear in this hearing. Um, you know, he's he's very, um, very calm, very methodical. Um, and, you know, these are, are allegations that are very personal and very, uh, you know, um, un- almost uncomfortable, you know, sort of personally uncomfortable. You're diving into someone's personal life. But he um, treated yesterday's hearing as as, you know, as as calmly and as methodically as he has treated everything before him. And, you know, I, I also it would be probably dangerous to read too much into the fact that he um, is going to go forward with an evidentiary hearing. You know, he may determine that that no conflict exists. Um, so it will be, you know, he he has um, I think everyone involved in this trial so far has felt like he has been leading it with a steady hand. And he continued to show that yesterday. We're here with Shannon McCaffrey, the editor of the AJC's Trump coverage and also the co-host of the award winning Breakdown podcast, which you should stream right now or right after the show. Uh, this is the first time that Judge McAfee is going to weigh in on the motion from defendant Mike Roman seeking to disqualify a Willis in her office at this hearing on Thursday. Um, a couple questions about that. How quickly do you think we're going to get a ruling from him? I doubt he will rule from the bench, but how quickly could we expect something from him? And and then more about the the sort of intricacy of the legal issue. From my understanding, having a personal relationship isn't necessarily a legal problem. It's the is the underlying issue here whether there's a legal conflict and what proof does Roman and his team have that there could be a legal conflict to justify disqualifying Fannie Willis? Yeah. So as as I think Bill mentioned earlier, a lot of the legal experts have said, you know, uh, a relationship between people on the same side of a case is is not only not a conflict, it's not unusual. Um, but what what McAfee really honed in on yesterday 
And Patricia, you're right. He did kind of just push aside some of these other arguments in terms of um, his qualifications and his background. What McAfee really honed in on yesterday was whether this relationship had a financial benefit. Um, and and he really that seems to be the crux of what he's going after. Um, at one point, he also said um, he said that an evidentiary hearing needs to establish, quote, whether a relationship existed, whether the relationship was romantic or non-romantic and when it formed and whether it continues. Um, you know, so so he really is focusing very closely on on the issues that he sees might be a problem, um, you know, and some of the other uh, kind of wilder and more subjective allegations that were in um, that initial motion are going by the wayside. Bill? Well, I, Shannon, so um, l- let me ask you this. This is looking down the road, I understand. But if Fonnie Willis is disqualified from this case, is it does it take the entire, and I guess maybe McAfee would have something to say about this. Does it take the entire Fulton County uh, District Attorney's Office out of the case and throw it to the prosecuting attorney's counsel to decide who would come in? Or can other members of the staff pick up this trial? What do you understand about how that would work? What we understand uh, and what and what Mike Roman and others who have weighed in want is for um, the whole office to be mm-hmm. disqualified. You know, the, the argument is you can't you know, you can't segregate this case. This case is huge. It's important. And it would be, you know, near impossible to kind of carve it out and put it in, in a box by itself. Um, you know, so our understanding is the whole office would come off. It's kind of all or nothing. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the 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 process would be that it would go to the prosecuting attorney's council of Georgia, which would try, who would try to find a, um, (laughs) a new prosecutor. Um, and, you know, as we know, uh, there, you know, Nathan Wade was not Fonnie Willis's first choice to lead this case. She reached out to a few other people who said no. Including former governor Roy Barnes. Absolutely. And they said, you know, there could be various reasons, but what we know is that they've said no because of the time commitment. This is years of your life and the potential violence. So I don't know if it's going to be easy to find someone who would want to take this on, especially midstream. Well, we also have the issue of whether um, Pete Skandalakis, who has had the um, decision-making power to find another prosecutor in the Burt-Jones case, when Burt-Jones was severed from the Fulton County case, has months and months later not found someone to do that. Now, I don't know whether that's because nobody wants to take it on or whether Scandal Lackis has been waiting for something to happen. Um, So we have no idea of how he would move on this either, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, And I mean, we that process really all happens behind the scenes. And I think it's also, you know, important to note, as I know you've um, noted in various stories, uh, Greg and Patricia, that, you know, the the state legislature controls their budget. Um, You know, so we could see, you know, we're already seeing, you know, political shenanigans going on in terms of, you know, the this new council that would oversee district attorneys. You know, can you imagine if the prosecuting attorneys council of Georgia was dealing with how to assign the election subversion case and they were relying (laughs) on the state Legislature for funding. Um, Yeah. Shannon, based on what the defendants are asking for, are we just talking about who would continue to prosecute this case? Or is there a chance that the charges and the case itself could fall apart? 
there there is a chance the charges could fall apart. Um, part part of the part of what Mike Roman um, in his motion asked for was for the district attorney to be disqualified and for the charges against him to be dismissed. So you know that that is that could be the case as well. Um, you know he, he in his motion he only asked for the charges against him to be dismissed. There have been I believe five other motions now by other defendants who are kind of, you know, who've piled on the bandwagon. So yeah, charges could be at issue here too. It's it's just so difficult to say. Every every um every scenario has about five, you know, steps forward that that could uh it could be quite important. Uh, I know we got to take a quick break, but Shannon before you go, how are you and the team preparing to cover this a hearing that could end up going two days that is going to be nationally watched? Uh, how, how do you how do you prepare for something like this? Well, when we get off this uh, show, we're probably going to try to figure that out. Uh, but, but yes, it, it is going to it is going to be pretty huge. We're probably you know I would I would suggest anyone listening here uh, to come to the AJC that day because we'll almost certainly have you know kind of a live blog with updated event you know with you know following this step by step. But you know it's it's a it's a it's a it's a big story and it's a watch story. So, you know, we're going to rely on our reporters who have the best sources in Georgia uh, on, uh, on the legal front in this case. Well, thank you, Shannon McCaffrey. Get back to work. We appreciate you coming. Bye. Uh, still to come, Brian Kemp never mentioned Donald Trump by name, but in two high profile appearances over the weekend, he continued to criticize the way the former president is running his campaign. But where does Kemp fit in today's Republican Party? We'll discuss. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This podcast is part of the mission of the AJC, to be the most essential and engaging source of news for the people of Atlanta, Georgia, and the South. Stay up to date every day on breaking news, in-depth investigations, politics, sports, entertainment, food and dining, and so much more by becoming a subscriber to the AJC. Go to AJC.com slash start for a special offer and unlock hundreds of original articles published daily at AJC.com and the new AJC mobile app. That's AJC.com slash start. Okay, guys, over the weekend, Governor Kemp trekked to Washington and Lee University in Virginia to participate in something called Mock Convention. If you haven't heard of it, it's usually a showcase for potential 2028 presidential candidates. And I want to play a clip of something he said. There have been too many broken promises by too many people who claim to have America's best interests at heart. We have a federal government that is working for itself instead of the American people. And we have leaders unwilling to stand up to the fringe elements of their own parties because they're scared of getting called out on primetime Fox News or MSNBC. Ouch. Uh, Patricia, this is a message we've heard from Governor Kemp since he was reelected, even before he was reelected. But he's starting to sharpen it. And, and now, you know, he, he always blasts President Biden. Uh, you know, he's been critical of, of, of Donald Trump, of course, as well. But, you know, in this in these remarks, he's also laying blame at the feet of congressional Republicans. 
Well, just right there saying, uh, criticizing people who were scared to stand up to the leaders of their party on Fox News. Now, we know what party he's talking about right there. He's talking about the Republicans and Donald Trump. And uh, Kemp is continuing to occupy this very unique space where he is able to criticize the things that Donald Trump does, now even criticizing people who support Donald Trump um, without really naming names. So he's on a bit of an island, but it's kind of an island people wouldn't mind going to. I I think he's showing other Republicans the way it can be done. And I think he has deep, deep anxieties that Donald Trump is going to lose this election for Republicans when it should be easily winnable otherwise. Patricia, I think it's so interesting you talk about him being sort of on an island. Um, You know, I I think about the fact that when we watched Brian Kemp in his reelection campaign, we saw how masterfully he's able to navigate the anti-Trump sentiment that was, you know, attacking him, never responding to that, um, moving forward in his own way with the message he wanted to get out. So we really learned what a, a, a really smart uh, um, political thinker Brian Kemp is. And now he's doing the same thing on a national stage. But here's my question for you and Greg. Who's on this island with him? What is his future in the Republican Party? I, are we thinking it's gonna we're gonna go through this Trump cycle and eventually Republicans will you know uh, forget about Trump and decide to move back in another direction and Kemp will be there to lead the way? I find it very interesting to think about what happens next. Bill, I think this is the one of the biggest questions of 2024. Who will join that that island that Patricia has spoke of? Um, you know, we know of Kemp's aspirations to be part of the national conversation, part of the mix. Uh, we know that he is potentially going to challenge Senator John Ossoff in 2026. Uh, and we know that he's in the mix or he's at least being talked about as a potential 2028 candidate. And Donald Trump's presidency... Uh, is a huge challenge to all of that for him. And not saying he wants Donald Trump to lose because he's going to endorse Donald Trump if he's the nominee, hasn't quite done so yet. But everything that MAGA Republicans stand for right now, something that Governor Kemp used to stand squarely behind too. Remember when he jumped in this race way back in 2017, he was a Georgia first politician who was running to get Donald Trump's endorsement and ended up getting it. Um, but lately, Patricia, you know, he's been saying over and over again, Republicans have to stop looking in the rearview mirror, start looking forward. And in this speech, he lays out a number of the things he did that were controversial, that Republicans love. But he also then leaned into some of the things that were bipartisan. He talked about the anti-Semitic, uh, the, the measure to combat anti-Semitism. He talked about tax breaks that the Democrats supported. He talked about teacher pay raises. He talked about some of those more palatable things that he thinks Republican governors can also run on. Uh, and Republican lawmakers around the country. Yeah, and those have been really key to his success um, here in the state, that he does have red meat for Republicans, conservative by any measure, but also was willing to embrace these more bipartisan measures that get very, very broad support. And so we did talk to those voters, those Kemp Warnock voters, people who found a way to support both Raphael Warnock and um, Brian Kemp in 2022. So both of those gentlemen had had policies and even just personal appeal that that, um, was attractive to more than just their own political base. Um, But I have to say, when he said he people needed to 
get rid of their rearview mirror, another Republican, very high ranking, texted me and said, I really like my 2020 rearview mirror. (laughs) I'm keeping it. And as scary as that sounds, uh, and and it was only probably half in jest because a lot of Republicans in Georgia, but also around the country, have continued to focus on that rearview mirror and uh, in, in hopes of that it energizes Republicans and, you know, gets them. It also aligns themselves with Donald Trump, who, of course, still features mo- a lot of his campaign rallies on those false lies, those those premises, that fantasy that he won the 2020 election. But, you know, here's another thing I, th- I wonder about. Um, we've talked frequently on this show and just did a few minutes ago about perhaps Brian Kemp is setting himself up to run against um, Ossoff uh, in, you know, in, in, in the Senate election. But it strikes me that Kemp is, is carving out for himself this place in the political uh, mainstream that could make him an appealing candidate across party lines as a presidential candidate. Now, we know just how conservative Brian Kemp really is, but I think much of the country sees him as one of those moderate Republicans who's got a better, he's more sensible, he's not caught up in the MAGA trap. And and I find it fascinating that that could be the ground he's plowing right now. You know, it's interesting because Governor Kemp would never use the M word, moderate, to describe right, of himself. Course ever, not. ever, ever, right? Um, and it's a bad word among many Republicans in Georgia. But we did see in the 2022 election that a significant and decisive block of voters was willing to cross party lines and vote for Brian Kemp and then also vote for Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock. And we saw that down the ballot, too, with some other Republican uh, uh, office holders in Georgia. And there is that view, uh, especially nationally, uh, that, that Kemp, because he, you know, he, quote unquote, stood up to Donald Trump and defied his 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 pleas to illegally overturn the election results that has made him a hero to so many, Patricia. And this is something that he he is capitalizing more and more on. I mean, we've seen him on national TV over the week on an ABC he is beginning to sort of more, I'm not saying he didn't embrace it before, but embrace it even more, this national spotlight. Yeah, for sure. And I I mean, I completely agree with Bill. Um, I can't really imagine Brian Kemp and the Senate. I can run, imagine him down the road having an appeal, a national appeal. And he probably has Donald Trump to thank for that because of that high profile fight <laughs> that they had after 2020. But it, it was never just about 2020. There was his appointment of Kelly Loeffler. There was his decision to open COVID before Trump wanted him to. It's a genuine departure from Donald Trump, from Brian Kemp. And I think that's why he's not afraid to continue to say this. And when I talked about him on an island, probably the better metaphor was a road. He's kind of alone on his road right now. <laughs> but he's trying to get people to come with him. I mean, how many times does he have to tell Republicans, like, stop obsessing over 2020? Because everybody who does that loses. People who move on, like him, have won. The governor, of course, has a long and difficult history with Donald Trump. He speaks to the frustration that many voters, including hardcore conservatives like him, feel about a potential rematch. Uh, without mentioning Trump's name. This election should be about results, not personalities. It should be about the future of our country, not a race to the bottom. Because if this general election becomes a debate about who can outlast the other 80-year-old politician, the American people will lose. 
Bill, those remarks kind of speak to the, the the dread that a lot of Americans see. And we've had polls that signify this, right? A lot of Democrats aren't enthusiastic about Biden being on the ballot again. A lot of Republicans aren't enthusiastic about Trump being on the ballot again. But this is look, looks like where we're going. Yeah, absolutely. But here's what I'm wondering about. Mm-hmm. How jealous is Jeff Duncan of the path that Kemp is carving out right now? Jeff Duncan was GOP 2.0. He was the leader of this whole escape from Trump and the MAGA movement. And now he has been uh, uh, replaced, at least uh, for the time being, by Brian Kemp. Well, you got to stay in the arena to win the fight. That's right. <laughs> Guys, a couple more things we're watching today before we close out the show. Uh, there are two special elections underway in Georgia right now. One for a state Senate seat in West Georgia, another for a state House seat near Augusta. But the one that's captured the most attention is that second one, the five-way race that features 21-year-old C.J. Pearson, a pro-Donald Trump social media personality against uh, several other candidates. But the leading one is Gary Richardson, a former Columbia County Commissioner Patricia, this is someone that, as we mentioned about Kemp fighting those battles against MAGA Republicans, Governor Kemp's political machine has taken aim at C.J. Pearson. Yeah, they've gone right after C.J. Pearson. They've um, gotten involved directly in that uh, state House primary, which just isn't something that typically happens. You don't see uh, the Kemp machine getting involved in this. It's very personal, I think, for them as well, because if you go into the logs of legal history, you'll see Pearson v. Kemp when Pearson... uh, Sued Governor Kemp over the 2020 election results. Yes, you will. And we'll have plenty more on that tomorrow and tomorrow's show with all the updates. Well, that is all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta. Or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again Wednesday for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years and I am still amazed at how rich the city's black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that black people might want to know about. Like historically black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.